0: Welcome to Innovation Files, I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy.
1: And I'm Jackie Wisman. I lead development at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy.
0: This podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. And today, As we have a few times in the past, we're going to talk about China and the challenges it presents to American technological capabilities.
1: Our guest is Matt Turpin. He's a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution specializing in US policy towards the People's Republic of China, economic statecraft, and technology innovation. He's also a senior advisor at Palantir Technologies. From 2018 to 2019, he served as the US National Security Council's director for China and the senior advisor on China to the Secretary of Commerce. In those roles, he was responsible for managing the interagency effort to develop and implement U.S. government policies on China. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for being here.
2: Well, Jackie, Rob, thank you so much for having me.
1: And as I said, you served in the Trump White House working on these issues. Why do you think this was really the first administration to take the technology competitiveness threat from China seriously? And also, how much was Trump himself and how much was it that the issue had just evolved to where people were taking it seriously?
2: Well, first of all, I would say that, you know, I started personally working on it in the Obama administration. You know, so at the time I had been in the Department of Defense as an Army officer, working on the Joint Staff in the, in the China shop, working on, on China strategy for the chairman and vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and working in coordination with the Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, Bob Work, as they were thinking about the Defense Innovation Initiative thinking about the rising challenges of sort of great power competition. You know, if you'll if you'll take yourself back to sort of 2015 and 2016, you know there were open debates about both both Moscow and Beijing presenting new challenges to the United States and and really challenging the underlying sort of international, you know, liberal international system and the Department of Defense was at the forefront of of thinking about that. And really, you know, sort of Bob works, you know, Deputy Secretary Bob works sort of efforts around the third offset were about maintaining a qualitative military advantage over peer competitors that were presenting real challenges to the United States, and so that's really where this all began. And, and I certainly that's where I started working on it. And as the Trump administration came in, they adopted much of that stuff, sort of you know to to a certain degree, sort of whole cloth into into the administration. And many of the things that that we had been working on um, were things that were continued on. In that in that administration, and so I think you know, often it's sort of portrayed as this, this sort of deep division, you know, in between sort of December of 2016 and January of 2017, in which there's this massive change, really, in China policy. You have a you have a continuation of sort of what was going on.
0: I agree with that, Matt. But on the other hand, I always remember and I, I probably shouldn't say who it was, but I was at a dinner over in. Um... DOD world uh, on the other side of the river. Uh, and it was a pretty high-level dinner. Um, the secretary of one of the services was there, and I was sitting there talking to this person's uh, chief of staff, a, a general, at the dinner. And I said, look, uh, this is this is a little bit like that old E.F. Hutton commercial. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. I said, when, when you guys talk, people listen. I said, why aren't you more forceful in getting your views into the Obama administration? And uh, he said to me, he said, well." look, at the end of the day, we can kind of only say so much and we have to kind of take our lead from the administration, which at that time wasn't prioritizing it in the way that I think that Trump had. So clearly DOD was feeding it, but you need to have a a willing customer as well.
2: Yeah. I mean, you look at, you know, so November 2nd of 2016, you know, sort of three days or four days before the election, you've got Secretary Penny Pritzker, Secretary of Commerce and in the Obama administration giving a speech at CSIS about the industrial, you know, the threatening industrial policies of the Chinese Communist Party, what it's doing to semiconductors, um, and really lays out a rationale for why the United States would need to adopt sort of a more proactive effort there. And so you're absolutely right that that sort of it wasn't sort of settled policy, but what you had were the sort of you know the ways in which Washington works, which is you've got sort of deep debates going on, right? There's, there's a realization that our expectations of you know, our, our policy of sort of economic engagement and economic development will lead to political liberalization. We're not working out. Um, that's clear sort of by 2015. Uh, and you have deep debate across the administration about what to do about that. And you've got sort of division, I think, within the administration, uh, you know, within the last 18 months of the Obama administration about what they should do about that. And you could see different aspects of that starting to come forward. Now I think it's very clear that that's a very difficult sort of thing to change in the last year of an administration. But it would it seemed very clear to me that both a, a Trump administration or a potential Clinton administration were going to be adopting sort of new approaches. Right? And that that's sort of what was sort of set up as we were coming to the end of 2016. You know, you'll look at you know James Fallows writes I think a great article in the Atlantic that's published sort of first week of December of 2016 about China's great leap backwards right essentially that we are that that the expectations of what we had right this strategy of engaging with them and and helping the chinese economy to develop and help them move up the value chain that that would inevitably lead to political liberalization was very much seen as 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 not working out and that there was deep discussions you know across the sort of the policy community about why you would need to compete right and so i mean you certainly see this from reports you know uh, issued within sort of months after the trump administration takes office by the us chamber of commerce and the eu chamber of commerce looking at you know the threats of made in china 2025 all those things were written before the trump administration had come in they just happened to be published you know i think march of 2017 right so it's not as if those things were written because trump came into office those things had been written beforehand and are being issued out right? And so there is this, there's this understanding that things are shifting. And I think that it just happens to be that it, it, it happened at the time of an election, right? And therefore, we ascribe to it sort of that, that the election was the thing that caused it, as opposed to an underlying sort of policy debate across the community, that, that essentially our expectations of what would happen in China were not working out, and we needed a new approach.
1: Well, I'm going to give you credit, Matt,
2: well, you shouldn't
1: um,
2: because by no means uh, I, I I very much saw myself as a spectator to this um, show so, um, because this was happening really at at sort of all levels of government as we were realizing that that our expectations were not working out
1: and public awareness too I mean there's more of an a, a, an acceptance that this is an issue that needs to be addressed sure, yeah
0: yeah I, I agree with that, Matt certainly you know, we were playing that role. In fact, we, we came out about a month before the election with an agenda for, and and we, it was for Trump or uh, Clinton, uh, Secretary Clinton. I think they might have done similar things. Here's my, my question though. I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but you know, one level I give Trump a lot of credit for putting the issue up high, raising it and all. But at another level, I'm thinking, boy, oh boy, you know, kind of four years and what did we accomplish? Um, He didn't really support a domestic policy agenda like the Senate has with America Competes. He didn't really bring our allies into it as he could have. Now, would a Clinton administration have been able to do any better? I don't know. Frankly, right now, I don't think we see much going on in the Biden administration, at least on the the China front. We see it on the domestic front, but... uh, yeah, what's your take on that very broad question?
2: Yeah, so I, I mean my my take is that is that you know the president and his administration focused very much on on Japan and India as a as a way to begin that conversation. You saw a a very close relationship between the president and the leaders of those two countries. It it's what he prioritized and really saw that as sort of the way forward, right? And so the position that the Biden administration is in today uh, with the Quad, you know, has an awful lot to do with the, the sort of groundwork uh, sort of put in place by, by the last administration in making those activities a reality, right? And, and understanding that that the concept of an Indo-Pacific, right, reconceptualizing how we think about how the world works and where the sort of center of, of sort of economic gravity is and thinking of it through that way was where the administration put its effort and, and attention, now that often for for washington that's often a you know very much a, a transatlantic focus i mean it is sort of you know, to a certain degree much of our, our our conceptions of how things work tends to have sort of a transatlantic uh, focus the realization that that europe was not sort of along with us during that process despite the fact that it was certainly moving in in a you know it was having its own sort of policy uh, realizations during that period of time you'll remember that, that the European Union publishes its strategic outlook on China in March of 2019 in which it for the first time you know issues a statement about systemic rivalry right with as, as characterizing part of the relationship that Europe has with China which had not been sort of uttered war and this is really language that's coming out of the German Federation of Industries BDI uh, you know in January of, of 2019 right so this, this these things are happening across Europe but they had already happened. To a very large degree in Japan, the free and open Indo-Pacific is not a is not a a phrase coined by the Trump administration. It was coined by Prime Minister Abe back in 2012 and 2013, right? Thinking about you know, so what is the organization that we should be thinking about? You know, Japan had been you know pursuing diversification of its infrastructure spending across Southeast Asia for nearly a decade. You know, as as the Trump administration comes in, um, and so you know, I think to a certain degree we in the policy community kind of missed what Japan had been doing in that space, right? They had been, you know, certainly after embargoes of rare earths, uh, they certainly had understood the vulnerabilities that they had to becoming too economically dependent and vulnerable to the actions of a state-controlled economy in the PRC, and that they would need to figure out a new approach. And, you know, I think really the Trump administration, and certainly President Trump, certainly got ideas from Prime Minister Abe as he engaged with him very deeply about these concerns. And so I I would kind of characterize it that way. This is not everything happens in Washington. Not all ideas that are good come from this town, and that others have agency and that they are working on things of their own accord and are are pursuing things for their own for their own reasons. And so to me, that is sort of what is happening. And you have a continuation of that by this administration, who has engaged, who has continued to engage strongly uh, with India and Japan and Australia, but have also, I think, made. Made real headway across Europe, because Europeans have come to their own realizations about what they're seeing and the behaviors they're seeing out of Beijing, not because they're doing the United States a favor, but because they themselves understand those challenges.
1: And how much of this policy you think will stick going forward, maybe in the next administration do you think they're lasting?
2: Well, I mean, I think it has an awful lot to do with with sort of continued assessments of of the environment right as I is as I, you know, I'm a historian sort of as background um, you know not a technologist, not a political scientist uh, but a historian and I think that, that to a certain degree as I look back at like how this policy shift began to change it didn't happen because folks really wanted it to change it's because they were looking at reality that that things were not moving in the directions in which the strategy had sort of laid out we weren't achieving the objectives that we had hoped to achieve and grudgingly we were making these changes and i think you see this across countries sort of across democracies they're not sort of excited about entering into a phase of of sort of strategic competition with with the prc they are realizing they have to do so because it is sort of the worst the least worst option of what they have to pursue and so therefore you know as long as beijing continues to sort of act as it acts then i suspect that that administrations will be compelled to adopt these kinds of approaches, right? Because I think Beijing has shown that one, it is unwilling to follow through sort of on reforms that it itself has laid out, whether that's sort of the reforms associated with the entry into the WTO, right? Becoming a market economy, having the state control the economy far less, right? Or to to sort of lift its threats to its neighbors, right? Those things are going to compel countries to continue along paths that, that treat Beijing is a competitor because Beijing is treating others as competitors. And it would be great for us not to have to do that. But that I don't think that's likely to change in the near future. If it were, well, then we would recalibrate and we would adopt a new new strategy. So it's highly dependent upon what sort of Beijing chooses to do. See,
0: here's here's what I worry about, Matt. Which is, there was a nice article, I think it was in Foreign Policy, where it talked about the weakness of Xi. I, you know, you got to take that with a, with a grain of salt, but certainly there are Chinese leaders who think he, uh, he didn't hide the light uh, too long enough. He, he should have kept hiding the light, if you will, and, and not really challenge us for another 10 or 15 years till they're really ready. But what I worry about is, okay, so I don't think she is going to change, but at some point he's going to leave. And and, and then, you know, now you have some reformers who are more subtle and they, they get rid of wolf warrior diplomacy. They stop talking about, you know, every time Australia does something they don't like, they stop talking about sending missiles their way. They start pretending that they're abiding by the WTO and they bury... China twenty thirty five standards and they they underplay China twenty twenty five but they're doing kind of the same thing domestically in terms of their economy and they're getting ready for at least Southeast Asian hegemony and what I worry about is it will get taken in by that we'll go oh yeah things are going back to normal when really it's just a different front on the same on the same building what are your thoughts on that
2: I mean I understand that's a a, a concern and I and I share that that concern. You know, I'm not sort of necessarily stuck on the idea that there can be no possibility of the PRC pursuing a different path right but I think we would need to see actual evidence of that right you know, so if you look at you know what be- what Beijing laid out in in you know the third plenum of the you know, 18th Party Congress, you know sort of the economic reforms that Beijing announced in November of 2013. If Beijing had fulfilled those, which was really to sort of remove, in many cases, sort of the state and party's control over economic activities within the country, that would be a positive step forward. And had they followed through with those and had we seen those things continue, well, that would be evidence of the kinds of things that we would want to see, where we would want to encourage that, right? Now, there may still be individuals who have ulterior motives but if what we're seeing is that in actual practice, they're doing things that, that look like the kinds of directions that we'd like to see, then we should take it face value. Those are the things they're doing, right? So your position of if they were to change their behavior, I think we should be willing to consider a different approach. But we should be very careful about sort of what that means over time and how do we watch it? How do we measure backsliding? How do we pay attention to that to be able to sort of take it is not as if we had not been hedging. We had followed a position of hedging. We, we, we maintained significant export controls on the PRC since we resumed trade with them. Um, it's not as if we had lifted everything. Uh, we had still maintained many of the sorts of things that separated sort of the high end of our economy and, and things that were militarily significant uh, from being able to be traded freely and, and associated. So I, I I sort of would suggest that it's not as if we went to sort of fully open and fully coupled. We were always, to a certain degree, decoupled in many ways. And we are now sort of figuring out sort of the new position
0: for us to be in. One last follow-up on that, though. I still worry that they could change their methods, but still maintain their goals. And, and for example, to me, I think that, you know, look, Chinese officials super smart. I, I don't. Know, I think she just got over over enthused here, but that to me would mean we should continue, for example, the kinds of changes that Congress and the Trump administration made on CFIUS, uh, which is to you know be more careful with SIFUS, look at broader deals. So I wouldn't want to give up something like that just because the Chinese are you know abiding a little bit more by the WTO. I mean, you. Think I agree. That's right. You agree. Yeah. Okay.
2: I, I mean, so again, we should you know, it's sort of this trust, but verify this, this idea that if they were to, to sort of make a decision in which uh, they would not exercise control over overseas investment, right? So they let's say we remove the capital controls and to allow individual business leaders to sort of make their own decisions about sort of economic decisions about what they wanted to invest in, then I think, you know, we should then, of the things that we're concerned about, we should, we should consider that decision based upon our decision of what we do in terms of investment screening. I'm not saying that 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 we should get rid of those measures. We've we've had those measures even at the period of time where you know if if, if sort of the mid aughts was a period of time where we most trusted what was going on. We still had significant sort of investment screening of Chinese in, inbound investment into the United States. Yeah, you know, we were not allowing them to acquire advanced jet engines we weren't you know so in a number of ways we were still doing those sorts of things we'll still continue to do those sorts of things. Um, I'm not saying that we should be getting rid of legislation and, and, and our own protections that we have but it we should also recognize that that if they were to do that 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 is a positive step and we should we should welcome that right It isn't as if there isn't a way forward for the Chinese people to be able to, to sort of succeed and, and do what they want to be able to do. Um, But I think we have to be very mindful about what are the threats to our interests, and that those are also things that are just as legitimate to safeguard.
1: What are, on that point, what are some of the key steps the Biden administration and Congress should take vis-a-vis China and help facilitate U.S. tech competitiveness?
2: First of all, I think we're, we're in a tough position because over the last sort of three decades, we have allowed electronics manufacturing right so the locus for the making of electronics to move to the east coast of china and in doing so while we still maintain along with with a number of our allies a significant leadership in the manufacture of certain components into electronics the ability to sort of control the process of how things are made right and essentially be the consumer of those advanced components have put us in a really difficult position. You know, semiconductor manufacturers that that maintain sort of the, the highest end semiconductors, they don't sell semiconductors to, to individual customers. They sell them to people that make electronics. And if the people that make electronics are sitting in sort of one country, and that one country's economy is, is sort of controlled by the state and the party, and and they are intent in sort of moving up the value chain and gaining access to that higher degree of technology, then they have a they have strong leverage over those component manufacturers to turn over technology and turn over know how to allow the PRC to be able to expand. And I think that's a that's a challenge that that we have pushed ourselves into based upon earlier decisions decisions to to enable the PRC to to sort of localize manufacturing of strategic industries. And until that condition changes, it'll be very difficult for us to execute policies that allow us to maintain a lead in certain areas uh, that we need for both economic prosperity and national security.
0: So, Matt, maybe just to close on that, work closely with the sponsors of the Senate CHIPS Act. The CHIPS Act is also now in the House America Competes Act, which we really like. But there is, it's troubling. There are some folks, I believe, including some Republicans and maybe some Democrats, who are looking at this in terms of, well, why don't we do it like we did GM? We'll do it as warrants rather than as grants, which uh, completely misses the point that these companies aren't lacking in capital. What, what the issue here is just incentives for where they're going to put their capital. Uh, GM at the time was, was, had, had a cash flow problem, uh, which is why the Obama administration did that, did that bailout. And and it goes to your point of, you know, ultimately incentives are a key to, anyway, what are your thoughts on that?
2: I find the CHIPS Act and and at least the the concepts within it, right, that that we need to, to a certain degree, intervene within a sector that's important to us and that is being manipulated by sort of non-market forces and that the United States would need to intervene in some ways, right? And I think to a certain degree, it's great that we're beginning to have that conversation and that we're beginning to take steps on doing that. I happen to believe that that it simply cannot be limited to one particular set of components for a broader set of industries that that go across that. I feel that, that we need, one, to focus on, one, we need to be able to see how various economic and, and industrial sectors operate across global supply chains and value chains, right? And I think that for the government right now, they don't have a good way to be able to sort of see how those those markets operate, right? They they get information from US companies, but it's hard for them to see sort of deal flows, how the commercial transactions take place so that we can actually see what the environment looks like, right? And I, I kind of go back to sort of military comparisons. To me, it, you need a common operating picture if you're going to intervene into in, in these strategic sectors. And so you need sort of the data and you need to be able to see what's going on. And then you need to think about the whole suite of tools you have to be able to sort of turn the rheostat dials to get the outcomes you want, right? And that means you've actually thought through what is the outcomes you want. What are those industries that you need to have, uh, you know, a degree of of control over, right? They exist within the US or they exist within jurisdictions of, of of your close allies, and that you are not finding yourself in sort of a vulnerable position in which you create dependencies. I mean, I'm most concerned about, you know, as we move towards green energy, that we find ourselves in a position in which we trade energy independence to an energy dependency on a strategic rival. You know, if we do not get ourselves sort of in a position, you know, as we electrify grids and we start to electrify and green our energy sort of output, if we do not have the ability to be able to provide those for ourselves, we are creating very tempting tools of coercion to present to, you know, a country that, that currently is seeking to sort of dominate those sectors. And that is really problematic, thinking about our future and how our, our own economy would work and what sort of uh, foreign policy options we'd have in the future.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's always striking to me how little capability and even thought goes into exactly what you said, which I 100% agree with. There's two reports that we just issued. One that I wrote, one was on the case for a strategic industry competitiveness strategy, as opposed to just a generic competitiveness strategy. Yep. And then another on how if you were to integrate a strategic industry focus into the government, how would it play itself out, including on the kinds of statistics and and analysis and intelligence that that we have to gather. Matt, we could keep going here for a long time because this is so fascinating, but we're going to have to wrap it up. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
1: you.
2: Jackie, Rob, thank you both very much. I really appreciate it.
1: And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC.
0: We have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes will drop every other Monday, so we'll hope you continue to tune in.